0: You're listening to the Rua Space Podcast. Hello, friends, and welcome to the Rua Space Podcast, where we help you make space for the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in your everyday life. I'm Phil, and today I am joined by someone very special to me, someone who I consider one of my pastors, um, very closely my pastor for a long time, and that is John Fogle. John, welcome to the podcast,
1: man. It's good to be here, Phil. It's good to follow Shane Claiborne on a podcast. I've <laughs> <Yeah>. made, it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. made it. Yeah. right. <laughs> oh, man. No, this is, this is so good. Uh, you know, So we were co-pastors for a number, a number of years. Do you want to kind of share with people who you are, what you do? And I don't know, we can just for a minute get into our story a little bit because then we're going to dive into Job, which is going to take people to a very different place.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, so as Phil said, my name is John. I'm I am just a pastor. I'm just a, an everyday normal pastor. I have not written any books. Um, I have no uh, area of expertise except for perhaps covenant history because I am a pastor in the Evangelical Covenant Church, um, which is a denomination. If you don't know, um, that's a good that's, one. That's a mess right now, in my opinion, but but that's just my opinion. Um and uh yeah, so I'm I'm the pastor at Hope Covenant Church, which is in Orland Park, Illinois. And uh our churches, Fellowship Bible Church, where Phil is the pastor and Hope Covenant Church merged uh, about two and a half years ago. Well, no, about two years ago. Yeah. Um and uh, yeah, it was it was a really good thing for both congregations. We were both in need of some vitality and and uh, an infusion of some new voices. And and then Phil, you know, left us and became <laughs> became Rua Space and um, is now interviewing people like Shane Claiborne on a podcast. So, you know, it, it really it worked out well for 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 him. Um, and it's, you know, it's still working out well for us, too. But yeah, that's that's uh, that's who I am, just well, a pastor.
0: And, and don't don't let John fool you because he, you you have many books in you, even though you may not see it. it, it it's it's coming, I think, because you never cease to challenge me. I can't tell you how many times we, you know, during COVID, we did all of these little videos and sort of dialogues. And John was always just destroying my arguments and uh, making me recant whatever I had said earlier. And so you have a lot of really awesome things to say. So I'm really excited for this conversation.
1: Yes, yes. Uh, it's true. I am a contrarian, which is a unique thing to be as a pastor in a denomination that's all about people being able to hold their own opinions. Um, it's true. Uh, I appreciate you saying I have many books in me. Whether they will ever come out of me, they are—they will come out as kidney stones come out. With great pain and suffering. I,
0: th- I think that's the case for every everyone I've talked to anyway that's written a book has felt a little bit like that.
1: Okay, okay. Well, that makes me feel better because <laughs> yeah. I've outlined books and um, the process makes my wife want to leave me. So, um,
0: <laughs> yeah, no, you're in good company. We're, okay, we've good, all been good.
1: <laughs> Excellent.
0: Oh man. So, so today then, you know, you are in this series in the book of Job at Hope Covenant. And yes. it stood out to me because this is one of those fascinating books, you know, where I, I of course, all pastors have probably at some point dealt with the book of Job. Uh, people listening to this have all, at least if you haven't read the whole thing, you sort of know the basis of the story, most likely. But what sort of stood out to you about Job? Why, why that book now?
1: Yeah. So, so we are. We about a year ago um, decided to begin to follow the lectionary and then um, work our ser- series within the lectionary and part of that was a an attempt to look return to a more liturgical minded um, process even if we weren't gonna be all the bells and smells of the Orthodox or the Catholic Church or like, high lutheranism bells and
0: uh, smells i haven't heard it put that way but I, yeah I, I yeah you, know, what you bells mean.
1: and smells you know um so you know even if we weren't going to follow you know like an episcopal process we were going to return to a, a form of the work of the people to try and re-emphasize that as a congregation you know this is a this is a, a whole body that's working together this isn't just like an entertaining thing where you know a a woman or man gets up and talks for 45 minutes and some a rock band gets up and then we go home Um, that this is really more than that um, that this is a community. And so part of that was a return to the lectionary. And for, for, for essentially nine months, I've been trying to convince a church that um, two churches really that kind of rejected the lectionary as a valid um, resource for, for faith uh, or for, for faith organization, I've been trying to convince them that this is the best thing for them and kind of take your medicine in a way. Um, this is what we should be doing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, even when I was hired at hope pre pre even being related to fellowship Bible church, when I was hired at hope, there was a survey that they filled out and, as part of our denominational kind of hiring process. And one of the things was, do you want lectionary or do you want, you know, no lectionary and, and like, it's like a sliding scale and they were like as far away from lectionary as possible. So, so, John so says, anyway, let's do the lectionary. So I'm like, let's do the lectionary because clearly that like, you know, let's yeah. process your childhood trauma related to the lectionary here right. in open space, you know? Right. So, so, so we do the lectionary um, for nine months and, and I'm just selling it every week look at how great this is. Like, Oh, I would never have picked this passage, but you know, the whole world's doing this passage this week, you know, and, and kind of doing that. And then we, we we kind of sh- shaped that a little bit where we would, we started looking at other churches who are also doing lectionary and how they use the lectionary. And one of the ways they use lectionary is to fo- some churches will follow one thread to its conclusion. So they'll follow, you know, the story of David, which is what we did earlier in the year. Um, from the first lectionary passage about it all the way to the end, they won't touch any of the other lectionaries passages. So if you don't know, this lectionary gives you about five passages every week with, under which you can kind of grab and pick and choose. And some churches just every week, it's a different one. And some churches follow one for a period of time. So, so we were following one for periods of time. And, um, we did that with the book of James after we did David And then the the next one that popped up, like the next week, started Job, and um, Job has like two lectionary passages in three years, like total, or or maybe maybe it's four, no three, I don't know. It's like it's maybe it's only three. Whatever it is, it's outrageously little. Like like if you know anything about wisdom literature, if you know anything about the Book of Job, it is just it is just way 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 too little to be able to understand job in any sort of cliff's notes spark notes version so so we spent a week kind of deconstructing the lectionary as a in some ways the lectionary is a tool of the systems of religious power and kind of triumphalism that have existed in the empire um, since, that's why
0: there's no lamentations, right? <laughs> which is why there's no
1: lamentations. You know, um, my, I have a professor who wrote a book on called prophetic lament. His name is Chung Ra. I, it, for people who like real space, you would like the book prophetic lament. I mean, just that's, I'll just, just sell it to you right there. Um, it's, it's phenomenal. I'll put a and, link
0: in the description. So yeah. Put a link in the right description. To- that's
1: perfect. Yeah. So, so prophetic lament. Amazing, amazing book, crit- kind of critiquing, offering ways that we can engage with lament and critiquing the ways in which we failed to engage with lament. But in there, in the first introduction or, you know, in the first couple of pages, he mentions that the lectionary, like less than 10% of the lectionary psalms readings, there's a psalm every single week of the lectionary, less than 10% are, are lament psalms but, but a third of the Psalms in the Bible are lament Psalms. So just there, right? Like we, we, we disproportionately remove lament Psalms from the lectionary. So, so in many ways, Job is the same way. We just disproportionately seemingly erase it. So, so I said, we're going to take a break from the lectionary. We're just going to spend seven weeks in Job um, Yeah, and just mess with it. And so that's how it happened. Um, but, you know, then Job, you know, really kicks you in the teeth.
0: And see, that makes me think then, because what I said at the beginning, that most of us know the book of Job or know the basic story. see you already got me thinking now, opposite of what I originally said. I think a lot of people may have a very surface knowledge of the book of Job. But even if you're not in a church that goes through the lectionary, most likely you may not have been through a deep dive into all the intricacies of Job and all the questions that it raises and all the discomfort it's maybe meant to cause us.
1: Yeah. 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 So I think that's a great point. So Job is what we call in biblical, you know, this is the point at which many of you might want to turn this off, but Job is a polyphonic text. um, And that's a technical term. Basically it means it speaks with multiple voices and so, when we talk about something being a polyphonic text, there's a couple things we can mean when we use that word. Uh, the first thing is that we can mean that it, it's one author speaking in multiple genres or in multiple substories. The other thing we can mean is that it, it's uh, one author being developed over multi, over a period of time, where the thought is being developed over time. And the other thing we can mean is that it's multiple authors. Um, in 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 Job's case, it's likely. Multiple authors speaking over, uh, in relation to one another. So through an evolution of time in multiple genres, it's about the most polyphonic text that we can have. And most people, most people will pick out one or two verses from chapter nineteen. They'll pick out a little bit of God's response in the divine uh, narrative, the divine response narrative, and then they'll pick out what we call the prose, which is the prologue and the epilogue. And so when we say most of us know the story of Job, most of us know the prologue and the epilogue. Right. Um, we know how the story starts. And we know how the story ends. Um, but, but the way I described it in, our, in my first sermon when we did an introduction on Job was um, it's like the Shakespearean play Hamlet. If you only know what happens to Hamlet, you probably don't know anything about the play Hamlet mm. um, because what happens to Hamlet is very it is important for framing what Hamlet thinks about the world, but it's not the point of the play. The point is that you get inside of Hamlet's head and you understand how Hamlet is feeling about the things that are happening to Hamlet. So it's not that the, that the overall context or narrative framework of Hamlet is is insignificant. It's significant, but it is the narrative framework. It's not. It's not the substance. It's not the meat and potatoes. Which I think it's funny when I use that because I'm a vegetarian, but. Um, <laughs> It's not the meat, right? As yeah. Paul says, this is not the good stuff, um, and most people miss the good stuff.
0: So, so what have you found to be the good stuff? And I know that obviously we could to to truly do justice, you need a lot of time, right? And that's why you yeah. guys are taking multiple months to go through it. But what is something maybe that's that's really shocked or surprised you that is taking your engagement with this book to another level?
1: Yeah. Well, so, so there's a couple, there's a couple things. The, the first thing is that Job is the only book in the canon that casts God as the bad guy. So, whereas the rest of the canon is about how Israel in the old Testament, Israel's wickedness or Israel's um, disobedience leads them astray. And they're the good, they're, they're the bad guys and God's the good guy. Or in the New Testament, that the Roman Empire, or in the case of Revelation, the the Roman Imperial Court, are the bad guys, and the the New Testament church, and Jesus are the good guys. Um, Job stands apart, where Job, in the story of Job, Job is the good guy, and God is the bad guy, and the people who are are, who are essentially defending God are also the bad guys. And, and I don't say this in, in terms of like, that's my interpretation of the text. God says that in the text. So God says the people who are defending me are wrong. And Job, who is, who is uh, essentially convicting me is right. I mean, that's literally what God says in, in, I think it's chapter 42. Um, Job has spoken rightly of me. So, um, yeah, it, it 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 does not fit within our understanding, our simplistic understanding of God. Um, it it creates it it brings God from a two dimensional, um, kind of literary device for good behavior, in in the in the Old and New Testament, into the dialogue of the complexities of the world, um, where two dimensional things do not belong
0: well and that's the importance just to sort of interject right there I mean that's the importance of understanding it as wisdom literature I mean the story the story's main point to me is not about suffering actually like that is just sort of the maybe part of the container that is dealing with these much more complicated things that rather than just a theodicy story it's wisdom literature and so wisdom literature is going to dig in to mystery and complexity and it's going to invite maybe invite more questions than answers.
1: Yes. Yes. I think I think fundamentally so. I think the 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 result of job is that we should leave with far more questions than we came with about the nature of reality and the nature of the world. Um so so yeah so I think that, that I, I think that that's a big that that's been the the number one thing that stood out to me is that is that Job the way that I've put it in our, in our, when I've preached is that Job really does not fit into our, our canon. And what I mean by that is not that Job does not fit into the canonical Bible, but that when we reduce the canon to systematic theology, which Western Christianity and especially evangelical American Western Christianity has been um, excited to do over the last 150 years, when we create a kind of a two-dimensional cause and effect relationship between all things, or, um, you know, we cast God into a box that we can understand and quantify so that we know when we put things into the box, what we'll get out from the box, mm-hmm. um, then Job, Job does not fit in that canon. Job, Job if, if that is what the Bible is, if the Bible is the story of, of how um, we can systematize a religion to to know who's in and who's out and who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and why bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people. If, if that's the point that you're trying to get to um, I, dare, I call it neo-Calvinism. Um, you know, if you're, if you're coming at Job with an approach of neo-Calvinism, I I would argue. Why, why even keep it in the Bible? Explain
0: it, to it, people what you mean by that.
1: Yeah. So if you come, if you're coming to uh, coming to scripture, looking to essentially create a, a worldview that serves your rhetorical purposes of why things happen in the world, Job, Job essentially throws a monkey wrench into that mm. uh, because Job doesn't do anything wrong. And the text it's a fable, right? So it's not, it's not a true story, at least. I mean, you can believe it's a true story. That's fine. Um, but it, it's not intended to be viewed as, as history. It's intended to be viewed as parable. Um, I think
0: Danny Allender and Tremper Longman, I remember taking a course with them. And I think they thought they, I believe it was them. So if, if either of them hear this, I apologize if I'm wrong, but a thought experiment was another way someone, I think they put it or
1: yeah, you know, someone in there. Put yeah. It. It, this is really common at this time in, in history. Um, the, the, there are lots of questions being written around this, the time that Job was written. Um, the Babylonian theodicy is another one, which is strikingly similar to Job, um, where you have two people, one is designated as the sufferer, um, is, is they're arguing over why bad things happen you know this is this this argument kind of literature wisdom literature is pretty common during a certain period of time and so you know yeah i think an allegory or or a thought experiment that i mean any of those work and and i think that with the book of job what you get is um that that thought experiment essentially casts a perfect person uh job is a perfect person who is who who not only um, sacrifices for his own sins, but also sacrifices for the sins of those who, with, him, with whom he is in relationship. Yeah. Um. I mean, Job is so beyond reproach in, in the text that it literally calls him blemishless. And, and then he gets the worst hand dealt to him, not by, and I think that this is another place where we want to impose our views of, of, uh, of the characters of the Bible, not by Um, an anthropomorphized evil, AKA what we call Satan or Lucifer or whatever you want to call anthropomorphized evil. Um, Not in the form, you know, Satan in Job is not that. Satan in Job is the executioner. It's a person who works for God, um, whose job it is to do things that God does not want to do and there's a great book i'm forgetting who it's by called the satan that kind of outlines mm. this the development of the concept of satan throughout antiquity but but the concept of satan here in job is not one that we necessarily understand you know that that's based more in books like enoch and things like that 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 move into the second temple period where you get this figure in the in the desert with jesus that that's a that's a different person
0: yeah this one works for god
1: <laughs> this one works for god right so this one is, is 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 this this satan or the the you know the accuser the advocate the, the or the accuser or the executioner this person works for god so so it is it is at god's behest mm-hmm. that all of these things happen to job it's not some sort of divine conflict between anthropomorphized good and anthropomorphized evil um it is, it is God in all of God's complexities doing these things to a perfect person. Um, essentially, God having a thought experiment with himself mm. of what would happen if I took everything away from someone who's doing everything right, you know? Yeah. So, so- I think, yeah, I think that it, I think it breaks our conceptions why bad things happen to good people.
0: Yeah. Well, and if, and, and so what kind of questions did that raise for you? Because I know as you are putting together a series and such, um, if it's, if it's breaking the mold and all of a sudden roles are reversed, like what kind of questions do you start to ask yourself based on that experience?
1: Yeah, that's a great, that's a great question. Um, you know, I tend, when things don't fit within my, um, let's call it, Theological moral worldview, because that really is the the contest here. You know, there's a great book by Carol Newsom called "The Contest of Moral Imaginations." Job a contest of moral imaginations. Um, when things start to break my moral imagination of why the world works the way that the world works, I tend to hyper intellectualize. That's my defense mechanism: is to just understand, mm-hmm. just try and understand the the social cultural framework under which, or, you know, the, the, the literary genre that some things come out of. So I think it's raised questions in me of um, really looking at myself and, and asking, you know, well, well how do I function as essentially Job's friends function who, who if you don't know the kind of the context of the story after so job is this guy who has everything. Everything's taken from him, His whole family dies except for his wife, His wife turns on him. Nobody, he goes from being the most influential person in his community. and in fact, in the wider regional community to being nobody, nobody recognizes him, nobody cares about him. It's It's a total fall from grace um, in, in in the most extreme of senses, loses everything. Um, he, he then has three friends who essentially sit with him and argue with him over why these things happened. And they're trying to hold on to a more antiquated and unnuanced version of why bad things happen, which is essentially bad things happen because there are bad people. And in fact, maybe these things happen to you because you're a bad person. Like that's that's the ultimate, I mean, this, I'm simplifying some of the most beautiful poetry I've ever written into a sentence. So, so understand that, like, that is not, that is not a good summary, but um, so that's what happened. So, so, so I'm, I'm forgetting where I was here, but, but, but the point is Job's response to that is to, is to challenge those frameworks. And I, and I asked myself, well, where am I in this dialogue? Am I a person when I see bad things happening to someone that my kind of initial, perspective is to be Job's friends Am I, is my first response when I see a person who's homeless or I see a person who's um, in a in, in a gang or something like that. Or, you know, I, I work with people. I'm on a I'm I'm doing a project right now where we're trying to get a, pr- a parole board in Illinois. Illinois is a state that does not have a parole board. So there's no there's no way for people who are incarcerated on life sentences to show that they have been reformed. Um, or to plead their case if they were uh, for, to, to another higher authority or a, a different authority when they've been wrongfully convicted or when the law has been um, unjustly applied or things like that. So there's no parole board in Illinois. So we're working to get parole in Illinois. But in that in that process, I work with people who have done horrific things. That's just part of working with people in a maximum security prison. There are people who have killed people. There are people who have done all of the worst crimes that you can imagine? And is my first response to them as Job's friends to say, well, I mean, look what you did and look how you got here. Or is my first response to have a different moral imagination that says the world is a more complex place and I don't understand all the intricacies that come here. Um, I don't even understand my own privilege in how I didn't have to make There were, I I never had choices that had the consequences of the choices that you had at 16 years old. Things like that. So I think that that's the questions that it brings up for me. And I think that that's at at its best. Um, At its best, wisdom literature challenges us to be um, more complex, better humans. At its worst, wisdom literature challenges us in such a way where we kind of cry out as Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes and Job are very different books. Don't hear me equating them, but, but, you know, Ecclesiastes begins nothing. It's all meaningless. Everything, nothing in life matters. You know, um, I think that's the worst response to wisdom literature, which is why, by the way, Ecclesiastes starts that way is because it's trying to help us not to feel that way. It names our pain for us. Um, but a lot of people could read Job and, and just go, well, I guess nothing matters, you know, I could work for my whole life and, and just have everything taken away in a, you know, instant, you know?
0: Yeah. Um. And that can happen. It's true that that can happen.
1: Right. Right. I think Job also frames for us Jesus's words in the New Testament in context. I think Jesus, I think that Jesus reads Job well.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I hope so.
1: <laughs> right. Right. What, which, which I think is like kind of a silly thing to say. No, I
0: get what you mean, though.
1: But but I think that I think that most Second Temple Jews are reading, um, Second Temple religious authorities are reading Job really poorly, mm-hmm. and I think that what separates Jesus, I mean, you could you could make a case, I, and I'm not going to make this case. You can make a case that Jesus's theology, even though he doesn't speak about Job specifically, Jesus's theology is so informed by Job that that his entire religious framework is built upon a concept of God that is just far more um, nuanced than, than other religious leaders of the time. The historical Jesus seems to speak to some of the kind of fundamental principles of Job in ways that other people just do not.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think that's honoring, and and it seems to me to bring back to even what you started to say at the beginning about if you're coming with a systematic view that is just going to answer all your questions and provide everything black and white. It really blows that up because the world is so much more complicated than simply the labels that give us comfort, right? That allow us just to feel good and safe. And I think that to, at least that's what I'm hearing. in what you're saying about Jesus right. is Jesus wasn't trying to make people comfortable and, and say, Hell, oh, here's all the answers. I think Jesus was inviting a a whole different vision of the world, which means nothing is as simple as oh yeah, like like you mentioned with the with the people in prison. Oh yeah, you did that bad thing. Now you know now now you're done. That's it. It's like right. whoa, whoa. Like even even the action itself. And this isn't to this isn't to affirm that that harming someone or killing someone is okay, but it does raise the question of. What was their story? What was their pain? What was the 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 situation that led to that? And and that seems to be wisdom literature, right? Of of blowing it up, so we say, oh man, not so simple as we thought,
1: right? Well, in the in the book of Job, I think the other thing about the book of Job is that the book of Job is is an evolving work. Um, we think of you know in the Protestant church and Protestant traditions, especially, we have a very um, rigid view of scripture, namely that we believe that scripture has a start point and an end point, and usually we don't we don't have the the resources and the biblical criticism to realize how absurd that concept is. Um, my wife and actually Phil's wife were they're photographers, right? So, um, my wife's job is to go and take pictures of people and to freeze moments in time for them to be able to look back on forever. That's, I mean, that's the the goal of photography is not to give somebody something that's untrue. It's to actually give them something that's that's so true that it invokes emotion in them. Um, And to do that, you have to freeze a moment in time, which they will understand. In many ways, the development of the canon of scripture was, was the freezing of a moment in time, that, that the reason that we have the Bible the way that the Bible is today is because it wasn't frozen 200 years before it was frozen, and it wasn't frozen 200 years after it was frozen. It was frozen at the exact time that it was frozen. And, and that means some stuff that maybe, maybe later generations would have kept in wasn't kept in some things that earlier generations would have would you know got rid of were lost that's just the nature of 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 the of the bible that we have and protestantism has this rigid view of of scripture where we say well what's from page 1 to page you know 1400 or whatever however long your bible is like from the beginning of genesis to the end of revelation that's what we have and that's it Um, But books like Job, which are expanding evolutionary works, which started likely as the prose, the prologue and the epilogue, and then somebody inserted a wisdom dialogue with Job and his three friends into that. And then somebody inserted God's response to that into that. And then somebody inserted a poem by Job into that in the middle of what the nature of wisdom was. And then somebody, after all that had been done, somebody inserted a, a Fourth character from Job's friends, a fourth friend that criticizes all of what's happened before in Elihu. They just added that, but but then, the, then it was frozen and we go, oh, well, whoever sat down and wrote Job, whoever the guy who wrote Job was, wrote it from page one to, to the end of chapter 42 in one sitting or, you know, in one time. No, that's not how it works. It was a criticism. There was somebody who criticized the story of Job in a wisdom dialogue. There was somebody who criticized the wisdom dialogue by adding God. There was somebody who, like, this is how our scriptures develop and advance. And this is how we should view the world as an evolving and changing process. I'm not saying that we should be adding books to the canon. I'm not saying that we should be taking things out or whatever, but my point is, we don't view it that way. We view it as, as very rigid. And I think that we need to, to go back, especially to the rabbinical traditions to things, um, you know, the, the Hebrew, the Hebrew rabbinical tradition has, has like comment like they view commentary on scripture as scripture. Like we just don't get that in Christianity. We, 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 we want to freeze it and then, you know, and we want to erase all the traditions before every time there's a new reformation of Christianity, the new denomination that pops up wants to go back to the original manuscripts. They never want to take, you know, and they're being informed by Augustine and other people, but they, they don't acknowledge it. You know, they just want to go back to the source material and pretend like they're, they're working within the, the, the lines of the court that they're in. But that's just not how Christianity works. That's not how our Bible was developed. It was a, it was a time, it was, there was a time when it was frozen and that, and I think that's significant for us. We need to accept that and acknowledge that, and I think wisdom literature helps us to do that.
0: Yeah, I think that playfulness of the text is is a is a worthwhile thing to consider. And I hadn't heard of Job being put together in that way before, but I could totally see that being the case. Whatever whatever combination of it, I mean, you even think of, of other books of the Bible where it's pretty clear there's multiple authors or editors changed. Yeah, and, uh, Isaiah shifted things. Probably, yeah. I mean, that would be my argument, even in Revelation with the 666, right? If that's a reference to Nero, you know, for example, we have other documents that it says 616, and and some theorize that it might be 616, because that's how they would have calculated the number of Nero. And so we have those types of dialogues going on. And I like how you then apply it to our modern day faith, that we are going to constantly be evolving. And I think the scary part for some people then is, I think we are often taught, hey, you have to arrive at all the right answers and you have to sort of be there already. And the truth is, Something you think today is probably not something you should be thinking in five years. Now I can't tell you specifically what that thing is, but there's going to be something that shifts. And, right. and being open to that is actually part of growing. That's part of the journey, not something to be scared of, but embraced. And that's how we come to love one another better.
1: Right. I, I mean, I think this is a broader question about Christianity. Are we in the midst of a reformation, you know, right now? You know, I, I think that pure, you know, totally non-theologically, right? Like if we just look at the social makeup of the United States and Western Christianity more generally, um, we, we are either, however you want to describe it, we are in a period of immense change right now. Um, generally the systems that are in power when a massive change occurs The first thing that we call that change, the first thing we do is belittle that change. We call it fringe. The second thing we do is we call that fringe the end of a thing as we know it. Right. So when France, when the French Revolution happened, the the French oligarchy said, this is the end of France. (laughs) There will be no more France. You know, a couple hundred years later, we're like, so weird. France is still there. Yeah you know it's different but it's still there i think that when the catholic church sees martin luther going to to the to the germans they're saying this is the potential end of the church mm-hmm. we're going to lose everything if, if this happens and then no the church is still the church even you know 500 years later we're still kicking it's still different it's different but it's kicking and i think that mm-hmm. what we're ha- what's ha- what we're seeing right now is we're seeing another reformation like that and some, some of the church has it has embraced that and has gone with that. Some of the church has rejected that and is saying, this is the end of Christianity. We're not going to have a religion anymore. Or they've, you know, apocalypsed it, you know, and said, oh, this is, this is the beginning of the end times because there's a mass falling away. Well, I think you have to define falling away, you know. And, so, and, I, would,
0: and I would encourage everyone. I just, I'm going to let you keep going, but I want no, sort to of no, stop I'm everyone gone. right there and say, If when John was speaking, and John has a tendency to do this in the best way, I mean this in the best way possible. If when he was speaking, something came to your mind, or you felt something drop in your stomach, or you felt a pain in your neck, or you felt, you know, whatever that may be, I want you as soon as we're done talking, or even now to pause it and come back, to be curious about what that thing was, because you didn't intentionally bring that thought or that feeling up in response. It was, it was there. And I encourage you to deal with it, to think through it, because that may be an invitation of the space where you're being invited to expand or at least consider something in a new angle.
1: No, I appreciate that, Phil. I appreciate that. And 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 to be clear to anybody listening, um. I grew up in a Christian home, I grew up within evangelicalism, it's a weird form of evangelicalism from a pietist tradition so I don't expect everybody to be able to fully embrace how you can be both evangelical and pietist because those are seemingly contradictory, Um, but this has been a painful process for me too, right, like this is not an easy thing for any of us to go through. And I think people like to dismiss it by saying, oh, well, this is just the product of theological education, and that's just brainwashing, or seminaries are just bad, but whatever. But you know, what I try and remind people is, no, actually, this is not because of a theological education. This is because a theological education taught me how to research and taught me how to look critically at the world. And um, when we look critically at the world, uh, we, are, we are in the world hopefully we're not of the world according to, you know, according to the Bible, but we're in the world. And so we are, we are at least semi products of the world. And so when we look critically at the world, we look critically ourselves. Yeah. And so I'm not surprised that it causes people, it does not cause me a drop in my stomach anymore because I've said it so many times that it's just become, it's become palatable for me. Right. But, um,
0: But, but I think it, but it's, it's around specific issues. So, I mean, my hope is people are considering what this means for you as an individual, for your family, for your church, for your nation, the fact that things may feel a little upside down, but that upside down may be. The kingdom of God's upside down. I'm not saying it, like, I don't know what you're going through as an individual, right? So I can't say specifically what you're thinking of, but I think there's at least the invitation to ask, is there greater complexity here? Is there something else? And maybe being open to, to seeing that. Um, or at least wisdom is about wrestling with it. Are you invited to wrestle? Maybe, and you may end up right where you are, but have a more nuanced understanding, right? There there could be there could be a yeah. lot here, but I think it's a journey at least worth wrestling with.
1: Yeah. No, I I I, I totally agree with you, Phil. It's I had so I had a, a conversation with with who was on your podcast last week, Shane Claiborne, one time, where we were talking about the fact that um the world seems worse now than it has been in the past. You know, give me a number, right? It feels like everything is, you know, Christianity is more militaristic in its approaches to evangelism and, and goodness. Christ, you know, it just seems like there's, there's been a devolving of our rhetoric in society. And I think that there's, there, there are so many social commenters, from Joe Rogan to, to, you know, I mean, like that have tried to explain this um, some better than others, but uh, what we kind of came to in this conversation, we were talking about vegetarianism, surprisingly. um, But we, what we came to in this conversation was essentially the idea that all systems that are doomed to fail will, will inevitably have a fight or flight response at the end. They will fight like all get out to survive, especially when their doom is imminent. And Mm -hmm. so I think that it's true internally in us too. You know, we can get to a certain point with nuancing our perspectives of scripture and God where it seems helpful for a period of time. And then we'll get to a point where it feels like we're at the precipice of a new understanding of things. And our response to that can often be to reject that wholesale. I think that people were really on Jesus's team for most of his ministry. They were really vibing him. They were really like, Hey, we're, we're all in on this message of, you know, a a wider pool and, you know, kind of a Jobian acceptance of the complexities of, of, you know, a non, a nonlinear relationship between cause and effect and, and sin and, and pain, Um, right? Like all of these are the the social deconstructions that Jesus is presenting to the, to the first century. I think most people are like vibing him most of the time. And then at some point he went, he crossed the precipice for them. He went over the Hill and then it was like, no, we got to kill him because now he's a threat to our fundamental principles by which we live. So if your response is to be like, yeah, I'm vibing this. And then at one day you just go, no, I want to go back to the way that it was before. I want to take the blue mm. pill, you know, <laughs> like, like why, oh, why did I take the, the red pill? You know, if that's your, your response, like, great. You're a human. Like, congratulations. You've, you have confirmed your consciousness. Um, but so societies do that too. And so people mm. say, well, why is race, you know, this big thing? because we're actually dealing with it, you know, well, why, why are we finally, you know, talking about, you know, me too, a couple of years ago, well, why, why all of a sudden is this like a big deal? Because we're actually dealing with it. Yeah. Because when you actually destroy systems of oppression, they fight back at the end. Mm. You no, know, they don't need to fight back when you're not, when you're not destroying them. They can just casually exist in the subconscious until you threaten them and then they will pop up in the conscious and try and bite you in the butt. Um, yeah, so this is, this is the fundamental principle of Job though. Job breaks. I mean, we've gotten off of Job, but we haven't like, right. that's the beauty of Job, right? This is how Job is. Job will have a dialogue. Like we're having a dialogue that will seemingly be completely off topic and actually be all about the topic at once. Um, and, and to answer your question from before, what's what are the things that have surprised me? One of the other things that have surprised me, I don't read Hebrew well at all. Um, Job, Job, I've so I've gone to, I have a PhD friend who's in, I don't have a PhD. He has a PhD uh, from Harvard in oral literature. I don't even know what that means because I thought it was either oral or literature. I didn't think it was both, but <laughs> he has a PhD in oral literature or he's close to it in oral literature. And he, he, uh, He's talking to me about, because he reads Hebrew fluently and he's a Hebrew scholar. And he, he's talking to me about the Hebrew and Job. And he's like, it's not that you're struggling to read the Hebrew of Job. It's that nobody can read the Hebrew of Job
0: mm. on earth.
1: There are, there's no one who understands what Job is talking about towards the end of the book. When Job is talking to Alehu, nobody understands what that conversation is about not because not because we just oh it's so metaphysical that we don't know like literally the words don't make sense anymore mm. um if you're like the words of my faith tradition no longer make sense to me and i cannot make sense of them like yeah and job's still in the bible wow. you know yeah there's that,
0: something there that's for sure
1: it, it, it I think that this is the book that everybody needs to read Mm. right now. This is the book that when people talk about deconstruction or being an ex evangelical or deconstructing fundamentalism, whatever, like this is the book that does it in our Canon. You know, I, I come from a highly scripture, a a tradition that has a high view of scripture. Um, We say that, that the, the Holy scripture is the word of God and the only perfect rule for faith, doctrine and conduct. Um, I think that because we've avoided Job, we've ceased to realize that there, there actually is something in scripture that could help us get through the current crisis of modernity or crisis of, of consciousness or whatever. Um, But we just just pretend it's not there.
0: Yeah. Man, I was going to, I was going to ask you for a final word, but I think, I think you just gave a really beautiful, challenging and, also, in encouraging one, would would you want to add anything else? I, w- I would love to talk about this, obviously, forever. But as we come up on a, on almost an hour, um, yeah. I want to respect your time and, and everyone's. But that was a really good N word. Do you have any last word of challenge or encouragement? Read Job. But <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I'll, I'll 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 say this. Um, most people go to the Bible asking, "What has God said?" that that's that's what we are fundamentally asking when we go to the bible the book of job contains more words from god than any other book in any other single place the speeches of god in chapter 38 and beyond are the longest single running narrative in the same way that john 4 shows jesus's longest conversation with someone um job 38 through 42 show god's longest conversation with anyone hmm. um and in that conversation, God sings hmm. for a long period of time. And so the question that you have to ask yourself is in my scriptural tradition or my religious tradition, is God in the habit of singing? Is God hmm. in the habit of singing about things that seemingly God is say, stating are out of his control? Things hmm. like the Leviathan and the, the the complexities of, you know, in the world. Um. And if, and, if, and if God does not sing in your, in your tradition, if it is us who sings to God and not God who sings to us, then i offer you that maybe you're only seeing half of the picture. Mm. John, you broke me as you usually do in the best way possible. I appreciate it.
0: Where can people find you to go deeper? Because in this COVID world, if you live in Orland Park, I would say go to Hope Covenant. But if you don't live in Orland Park or or nearby, where can people kind of connect with everything you're up to because
1: they can do it in this in this
0: digital age.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, um i orlandhope.org is our is our website. Um you can also hit us up on we have a YouTube, we have a pretty robust Facebook. Um you know, those we're we're starting I'll be starting a class um that that's available to everyone on Zoom uh pretty soon. So you know, if you follow us on Facebook, it's at Orland Hope on Facebook or just look up Hope Covenant Church. We're the one with the leaf. Um, you know, uh there's a lot of Hope Covenant churches. It's just a thing. Um but uh you know if you follow us on those platforms then then you can know what's going on. Um and yeah drop in drop in on a Sunday morning if you live in Illinois and and say hey and uh you know hopefully hopefully leave with something that you can integrate into your life we go deep um but but i also think um we have fun so yeah
0: absolutely and we're all waiting for that book so bring Um, it out man i don't know
1: yeah i don't know i i'm i'm so you know phil and i will probably talk about this later but um i'm so uh invested right now in uh the conflicts related to the denomination and my interplay into those conflicts that um I had some ideas for books, Phil. They have, they have been postponed until I I don't know the, the first book I may write is why the covenant needs to, to return to its, to its fundamental principles and constitution. Um, Are are you going to nail it on the door? You know? (laughs) um, Yeah. Nobody who matters to in covenant leadership likely knows about this podcast, but, but, but if you ask them, um, they they already think that I have
0: <laughs> Hey, Hey, you might be starting something. <laughs> they're,
1: they're, they're, they're fairly sure that I've been nailing things on the door for about two and a half years now. Um, and they wish I would shut up. So, um, yeah, <laughs> well, well friends, you know, John really
0: is someone who hopefully you can tell from this episode really, really does go deep, helps us see things from a new angle. So I do highly encourage you to check out more of those sermons, join one of the zoom groups, um, and keep do- going deeper with them. John. Thank you so much, man. This was an honor and it was a blessing to me to get to have this space with you again. So thanks for taking the time.
1: Phil, uh, anytime you are hosting people as good as the people you host and you pick me, I am humbled. So thank you for having me. Blessings, Fred. You too.
0: Hey friends, Phil here again. Before you go, I just want to say thanks again for joining us for this episode. I pray that you are challenged and encouraged in some way. I do highly recommend checking out some of the links below to connect with Pastor John and Hope Covenant as well as the book that he recommended. And then friends, if you are interested in spiritual direction, I am now offering one-on-one sessions on Zoom where we explore your story, looking for where God has spoken and helping you to see where God may be speaking and the spirit may be moving in your life today so if you're interested in finding out more about what that entails you can also find that at the link below so thanks again friends for being here until next time grace and peace be with you